Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, today is Easter Sunday. We celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the, the highest feast day in the church. And for many, I think the entire Christian story, or maybe their experience of worship, uh, revolves around two joy-filled holidays, uh, Christmas and Easter, the feast of the incarnation, the feast of the resurrection. These two bookends on the Lord's life, a virgin's womb and an empty tomb, the womb standing like a door marked no entrance, the tomb a shrouded gate, no exit. And I wonder, what is the difference in Christmas joy and Easter joy? That's my question this morning. Uh, the difference is that Easter joy is mature. It's a mature joy that was a joy refined through Holy Week refined through Good Friday, refined through the cross. Uh, one preacher put it this way, at Christmas we joy with the natural, unmixed joy of children. But at Easter our joy is highly wrought and refined in its character. It's thoughtful. It has a long history before it and has run through a long course of feelings before it becomes what it is. It is a last feeling and not a first, a last feeling and not a first. And Easter joy indeed is a costly joy, a cost paid joy secured for us by the Lord Jesus, the one who died and rose again for us and for our salvation because he loves us, he loves you and me. Because of Easter, we don't just look back at his resurrection as a historical fixed point of history, we realize that he is right now alive. And we look ahead with expectation to the time we, we see him face to face, when our faith finally becomes sight. And I was just struck by that this week, that, that Easter joy is a last joy, not a first joy like Christmas. There's a peaceful reverence to the joy of Easter our passage in the gospel this morning is Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. That's what we'll look at. Uh, the gospel writer Luke, uh, he focuses on a perplexing mystery, this empty tomb, and leaves us with a profound marvel. Um, and you'll see that Luke actually jumps right in because if you've been reading the book of Luke, you wouldn't have just started probably with the resurrection account. You would have seen the whole thing. He doesn't even introduce these women, he saves their names for a little bit later. He gives a roll call of these faithful, amazing women. But look at verse 1. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. Um, and, and I would just say it's, it's probably impossible for us to imagine what these women felt. It's just a little bit too difficult to, to unknow what we know about Easter and what actually happened. Uh, but think about if you're in their shoes, the, the first Easter morning, what's, what's going on in your mind? What are, you, what are you doing? You're not going to Easter. You're going to a grave. You're going to finish the task of burying your friend because it was cut short by the Sabbath. You had to wait. 
and you couldn't work, and now you come, and I would think they're in a state of shock, a state of denial. Uh, They have seen horror incarnate as they gathered around the cross and heard Jesus cry out, it is finished. I always think about the movie, The Princess Bride. Y'all seen The Princess Bride? Is this getting too old? I don't know. At one point, the main character, he, he's tortured. Uh, it's a playful manner. It's not, it's not scary. Uh, but he's tortured to the point of death. And they take him to, to Miracle Max, who, who says, well, it's okay. We're lucky. He's, he's, he's only mostly dead. And they bring him back. They revive him. And I'm just always, man, Jesus was not mostly dead. We talked about this on Good Friday, but, but Roman soldiers, they were professional butchers. They made sure the job was done. They even pierced his side with a spear to double check. Then finally said, sure, take him. Take him to that borrowed tomb and then finish the burial later because the Sabbath is coming. I just think it's, it's important to, to, on this day, realize they were not going to, to witness the resurrection. They were going to finish the burial process. They thought they would find a, a corpse, the corpse of their friend, the corpse of their master, and so they go as an act of devotion and love. I can imagine it was hard for them to go. You wouldn't have naturally wanted to make that journey. Bishop N.T. Wright, who if you are a guest, welcome. You'll hear about him a lot here if you're here on a regular basis. He's shaped a lot of how I think about the resurrection. says they weren't going to the tomb saying to themselves, well, we've got the spices in case he's still dead, but let's hope he's alive again. No, they knew well enough that dead people remained dead. That, you know, that's not like a, mar- a modern uh, epiphany of science. They were very aware in the first century that dead people tend to stay dead. That was the whole shock and scandal of the resurrection itself. But then when they get there, Jesus is nowhere to be found. He, the stone is rolled away. He's completely MIA. And the perplexing mystery is he's not there. He's actually strangely absent in Luke's account. He's not there at all. There's no corpse to anoint. And verse 4 says, while they were perplexed about this, behold, uh, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, angels. What are we to make of this? They asked him, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. I, I don't know. I, I just imagine these angels. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a playfulness. Uh, there's a gentle rebuke. Hey, why are you looking for him here? Remember what he told you guys? It happened. He told you the whole time. There was no secret. It's like an open book test. Everything's going according to plan. Here's the thing. Everything that went into the tomb came out of the tomb on Easter morning. But what came out of the tomb, friends, it wasn't the same as what had gone in. Uh, Through his resurrection, something amazing, something glorious has happened to Jesus. It's like the transfiguration again. He's been changed. He's been glorified. He's been resurrected in a remarkable way. And just as you read the accounts, whether it's Luke or the other gospel writers, 
um, you'll notice that their words are failing as they try and describe the risen Lord Jesus. He, he both is himself, and then sometimes they don't recognize him. He takes food, and he eats it, and then he somehow goes through <laughs> locked doors. The resurrected Jesus is the first of his kind. And so we try to put language around it, language of poetry and praise and faith, but we should just realize what went into the tomb came out. Everything that went in came out, but it was changed, it was glorified, it was transfigured, and actually it stands as a promise of the hope we have for our future, our resurrection, our eternal life living with the Lord. And I think we're just reminded, this isn't like Lazarus. You might know Jesus' friend Lazarus who died in the book of John. Jesus came. It looked like it was too late. He, he, you know, like, hey, his corpse probably smells. Let's leave it alone. He's like, no, no, no. Lazarus, come on out. And he comes stumbling out. He's got all these grave clothes on him, and they unbind him, and there's Lazarus. Well, that's not resurrection yet. That's being revived, brought back to life. Jesus, something incredible happens where he's, he's not just brought back to life. He's brought through death into eternal life. Something new and glorious that the world had been waiting for since its creation but had never seen. We see this in the Lord Jesus. Romans chapter 6, verse 9 says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death has no dominion over him. Lazarus, he came out of the tomb, he died again. They started plotting his death immediately when he came out. And he's awaiting resurrection. Uh, Lazarus was brought back from the dead. Jesus burst through it, burst out of it, out of the grave, into something altogether different. Bishop N.T. Wright again says, We shouldn't be surprised at how surprised they were on the first Easter morning. It wasn't just a lack of faith that had stopped them understanding what Jesus had said about rising again. It's just that it was a, well, no one had ever dreamed that would happen like that. That, that a single individual, even, even the, the Messiah, that a single person would be killed, stone dead, and then raised to this new bodily life, the other side of the grave, while the rest of the world just carried on like it had before. This cosmic changing event, but they just kept going about their business. Interesting. Bishop Leslie Newbegin, uh, who served the church in India and then returned to England, says the empty tomb is the first and fundamental witness from which the good news began. That Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and that on the following Sunday morning, that tomb was empty. What a perplexing mystery. What do you make of it? What are we to make of it? Well, there is a, a miracle embedded in this, in verse 8, this profound marvel. It says, then, then they remembered his words. Uh, these amazing women whom are finally named in verse 10, Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women, they remembered the words of Jesus. Uh, they respond with remarkable remembering faith to the message of these angels. They believe, just, just get this, they remember and believe right then, and they haven't seen Jesus yet. 
They believe based on their faith and the testimony of these witnesses, these angels. And they return to the faithful remnant of the disciples, minus Judas, of course. But here we have a surprising moment. Those women, they, they don't see Jesus yet. They believe. They rush back to tell the apostles. And they're like, yeah, I don't know about that. They doubt. I was actually joking in the narthex. I, I thought of, I didn't do it, but I thought about selecting two or three random ladies here and just saying, sermon's yours, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens. That's how remarkable this is. And the apostles, they, they don't immediately believe. The women respond with faith. They respond with, well, not so fast. Let's check on it. There's a glimmer of hope. There's a glimmer of perhaps. Ah, and then Peter runs. Peter runs to the tomb to see for himself. Uh, when John records this, this is one of my favorite details in the entire Easter story. Um, John actually says that uh, I ran with Peter to the tomb and I beat him there. The whole world has to know he's slow. <laughs> Father Bill told me there's actually a, a tradition that the reason Peter ran so slowly was he had this shame piled on him from his denial of the Lord. He both wanted to see him and was hesitant. And how often is that how he approached the Lord? We're, we're rushing, we're eager, but oh, I don't know. Because <laughs> look what we bring with us. And what will happen when we get there? What will the Lord say? Peter runs, and he sees this, this mystery, the empty tomb. He, he sees his grave clothes laying in the tomb, and that's a detail. Bishop Newbegin says, Lazarus came forth from the tomb, still bound by the wrappings. He will die again. But for Jesus, he's like, grave clothes are left behind. I won't need them. They're done. Lay them there. What one gospel writer says, they're folded up. I was thinking like a nice little napkin at a nice restaurant. Just here. I'm going to set them here. I don't need them anymore. I'll never need them. Hmm. The witness of the empty tomb is a perplexing mystery and a profound marvel. And I would just say that, that honestly, the way that this story is told, this, this historic event is recorded, uh, reinforces its reliability as historical record. See, when Luke is writing his gospel well, Peter and the other disciples, they're the heroes of the faith. And yet, they're shown to be slow to believe, slow to run, <laughs> slow. Furthermore, Sally, in the first century, uh, women were not viewed as credible witnesses. I mean, you heard Mary Magdalene, and I don't know what came into your imagination, but it was not hard to slander and cast dispersions on women with mere rumor, like they did with her. And yet they are faithful servants, model disciples in this passage. Remember, the Peter had denied the Lord at his arrest and his trials. Most of the disciples had scattered, maybe for their own safety, but it was those women. And John, he was probably a child, he posed no threat. They were there at the last at the cross, then they're here at the first, at his resurrection. Thanks be to God for this, the tenacious, beautiful faith of these women. And here's the thing. Um, 
I don't know, for me, just the lack of faith on the part of the apostles, their heroes, and the role of Mary Magdalene and these women in these gospels who would have not been taken seriously. Well, that's so ridiculous, it has to be true. I mean, uh, I have kids, I'm a, I'm a father, I, I also was a kid. And there's this amazing thing when kids decide to tell a little tale, a little yarn, something not quite the truth. I've done that before. You've done that before. Have you ever seen that in their eyes? Like, oh, they think they're so clever right now. <laughs> and everybody knows this doesn't add up. <laughs> if you were going to make up a good lie, that's not how you do it. Well, that's the same thing here. If you were going to make this up, this is not how you would do it. You would have Joseph of Arimathea, a Jewish ruler, a man of power and wealth. Maybe him and a servant, they go to the tomb. It's his after all. And then you come back and tell the women. Or, or Peter, this revered leader in the church. Maybe Peter and James and John, they all three, maybe they go and they come back. I mean, they were... They were on the Mount of Transfiguration. Why not be there at the resurrection? That's how you would, that's how you would craft this if you were making it up, wouldn't you? I don't know. There's lots of historical reasons to believe in the resurrection. Um, it's actually that unmistakable evidence that, that keeps me a Christian. I can't get away from it. It's what we tether our faith to. It, it's, it's where we rest our faith, all of our weight, is on the resurrection. I can look at this and go, man, you wouldn't make a story up that way. And we certainly wouldn't be reading it 2,000 years later. A German theologian uh, once said, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it is a very unusual event. Again, granted, dead people tend to stay dead. That's not a new thing to understand. He says, second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. You have to respond to it. You have to do something with it. Again, you might have noticed that in our Easter gospel passage, uh, Jesus still hasn't made an appearance. Each gospel writer tells the story in a slightly different way. Not, not because they're making it up as they go, but they're emphasizing different things. The gospel writer Luke, he's writing to the Greco-Roman world. He's writing as an evangelist. He, he wants them to believe. He goes on to write the entire book of Acts. How interesting that Luke shows us men and women who hear about the resurrection without seeing Jesus. Because that puts them in our shoes. That's like us. That we hear all this that has happened. We hear this message. We, we haven't laid eyes on it yet. I think many of us would say once we lay eyes on it, then we could maybe believe. But the challenge is to believe before we see. How will we respond? With faith or not? I mean, right after this section, the risen Lord Jesus goes and meets two more folks. They're kind of like us too. They're on a road to Emmaus. They're disappointed. The risen Lord Jesus walks up and just starts to walk with them and talk with them, and they don't, they don't realize who he is. Man, how will we recognize the risen Lord Jesus? 
How do you have a, a personal encounter with Easter joy incarnate? Well, when Jesus sneaks up on these guys on the road to Emmaus, again, they don't recognize him at first. But then two things happen. And I actually think it's a gift because Luke says, here's how you can encounter this and know about it and respond to it. And what happens is Jesus first gives the best Bible study ever. He opens the scriptures, God's word written, and he shows them how all of it pointed to him. And then they share a meal, and Luke's very intentional. says he took the, took the meal, and he, he took it and blessed it and broke it and gave it. Communion. And then their eyes are opened. Their hearts are warm. They know him. They see him. Man, what a gift that Luke says, hey, if you want to see how this works out, open the scriptures and receive this meal. And you will have communion with the living Lord. You'll be like them, waiting to, to see, but you can grasp it. Hmm. Again, they, they knew there was this rumor about the resurrection going around, but they hadn't yet grasped it personally. They hadn't grabbed the difference between the lightness of a, a Christmas joy and the refined maturity of Easter joy. And the good news of the gospel is not just cross. It's not simply resurrection. It's, it's those together. The death and resurrection of Jesus for, for our sins, according to the scriptures. The death and resurrection of Jesus to renew and restore uh, everything. All of God's good creation. It's pretty interesting. At one point in the Gospel of Luke, they ask, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. That's what Jesus asked them. Didn't you know the cross was going to come first? It says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They share that meal. Their eyes are open. They recognize and experience the risen Jesus through the scripture and the sacrament, what the church has always called the ordinary means of grace things we actually have access to, things we can share today, friends. Amazing. Uh, next Sunday, we're, we are going to talk about another disciple who I think many of us relate to as well. Uh, in the Gospel of John, St. Thomas, who this church is named after, um, he has honest doubts. And he's invited to bring those to the Lord and see what happens. And we'll talk about that next week. But uh, for now, may we rest and rejoice in the joy of Easter. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. And as Peter ran to the tomb, even slowly, let us now run to the holy table to feast with our risen Lord. Let's pray. O God, who for our redemption gave your only begotten Son to die upon the cross, and by his glorious resurrection delivered us from the power of death and the devil, Grant us, we pray, the grace to die daily to sin, that we may live with him in the joy of his resurrection through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives, risen and reigning with you in the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.